you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, church. It's great to have you here with us this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Dan. I'm the youth pastor here. I'm excited to have an opportunity to share. As JP mentioned, we're going to be in a new series that's called Thanks and Giving because you know it's November and Thanksgiving is coming. And so we're going to talk over these next few weeks about what does it look like to be thankful? What does it look like to be giving in the context of our faith? And so I'm excited to be able to kick off that series. We're actually going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians today. So if you want to grab your Bible or if you have a digital version on your phone, if you want to grab your Bible, 1 Thessalonians is about two-thirds of the way through your New Testament. Uh, We're going to be in there uh, in a little bit. And I will just say, just, just to be upfront, uh, when I was younger, I had a lisp uh, up until fourth grade, and then I went to speech therapy. But I have to say that First Thessalonians is one of the hardest books of the Bible for me to say. So if you hear me say First Thessalonians, um, it's just because I'm regressing a little bit. You can snicker. It won't, help me too, it won't hurt me too bad. Uh, but we're going to be in First Thessalonians here in a little bit. And so just turn there and mark it or put your thumb or leave your book open. Um, but before we get to the passage for today, I want to tell a few stories to you. So the first story starts in uh, late spring of 2017. My family had been training and preparing to go on a mission trip down to Ecuador. We were going with an organization called Let's Start Talking, and our job was going to be to teach English classes or have conversational English with people that wanted to learn their English better using the book of Luke. So we would find people that would come, we'd spend an hour with them, we'd read through the parts of the Gospel of Luke and ask them questions. And so this was for people who English was their second language, they were trying to learn it better maybe for a job or or to go to school or whatever. And so it was a benefit to them because they were learning English, and it was a benefit to us because we got to share a faith, we got to talk about the Gospel. So my wife and I, Michelle, uh, myself and my two boys, Nate and Matt, we went down to Ecuador in late spring of 2017. But we had a little bit of an organizational problem. You see, we showed up in mid-May, and the schools were still in session. And so we were supposed to have these classes throughout the day, starting in the morning through the afternoon, and we were hoping to get a bunch of people, especially young people from the area. But it turns out, because school was in session and the kids didn't want to skip school, that our mornings were actually pretty open. Uh, We were staying with a missionary couple there, Rusty and Laura, uh, on there. They had a big campus with dorms and everything, and so we were staying with them, and so we started talking through, like, well, what can we do with our morning since we didn't have any classes? And they're like, oh, we got something good for you. Now, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to go out on the streets, and we're going to share the gospel with people. We're going to do some service projects, maybe some home improvements for some low-income families, but no, nothing nearly that exciting. Instead, what we got to do was sort keys. Yes, yes, you heard me correctly. I'm going to zoom in here to this table. We spent a couple of mind-numbing mornings sorting through a big box of keys. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why did you spend all that money to go to Ecuador? And so, 
This wasn't really our goal, but God had something for us in it. And so what happened is we had this big box of keys, and they're all different shapes and sizes and colors. And what you see on the table here is after they've mostly been sorted. So, you know, we had to look at the top of the key and match it with other tops of the keys. And then we had to look at the teeth and find keys that were the same. It was enthralling. Probably the most exciting couple days of my life. So we do this key sorting to kind of pass the time. Other great things came along. We did get to share the gospel. I don't want to like downplay that. We did get to talk to people about our faith. But we spent these couple days doing a relatively menial task, but it needed to be done. The missionaries had all these keys to all these rooms and boxes and stuff, and they needed to figure out where they go. They went to. And so we did this task for them. But what we didn't know was that there was something bigger in store for this task. So a couple of days later, uh, we were staying in a dormitory on their campus, and a couple days later, we accidentally locked ourselves out of the bathroom. And if you've ever needed to go to the bathroom, locking yourself out of it is not a good thing. And so we're standing there as my wife, Michelle, going, uh, what do I do? We were considering my younger son, Matthew, was about 13 at the time. And there's this little, one of those little doors, windows that kind of opened up. And so there's this little slot. And we we're kind of trying to figure out, can we somehow shove him through into the bathroom? Maybe if we broke down the door, the missionaries wouldn't notice. Um, but then we had this idea. We had just spent two mornings sorting through keys. And then we locked the door. We had a bunch of keys and then we had a locked door. And so one of us was smart enough to put together the idea that maybe one of those keys could unlock this door. And so we went through and we kind of reasoned through which key set to use, started going through the keys and lo and behold, Savior comes along and bam, doors unlocked. So I tell you this story because what happened in this instance was we had gone through what seemed like a relatively mundane, dry thing that served a greater purpose in letting us use the bathroom. And sometimes our faith walk is like that. Sometimes, often, always, we go through this walk of faith and sometimes we have to train ourselves in the mundane. We have to do these menial tasks because when the bigger things come along, when there's a greater purpose or something else God has for us, it's the training ground of the key sorting that opens the door for us to do these bigger things of God. So as we get into this series on thanks and giving, as we start talking about our thankfulness, we're going to talk today about how gratitude is a key our thankfulness is a key that opens something that I think is important to all of us. We're going to find out what that is in a minute, but let me pray as we get started. Lord God, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word that is, that is as true and useful and applicable to us today as it was when it was written thousands of years ago. Lord, I give you this time. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open. Our ears wouldn't just listen to the words, but they would be taken into our hearts, that they would change our lives, that we would leave this morning changed in a way that builds our faith in you, that we would go out and be lights for you in our world. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how many of you have ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty? Show of hands, Bruce Almighty. Okay, a few of you. So Bruce Almighty is a story of a guy named Bruce who he's kind of going through a rough patch in his life. And over the course of the movie, he meets God, and God gives him his powers for a brief period of time. 
But before that point, Bruce is going through some struggles. And there's this scene in the movie where he's driving down this road and he's really frustrated. And he's like, God, give me a signal. And you see as he's driving over on the side, there's one of those like construction signs that said caution ahead. And he's driving through. And he's like, oh, man, there's caution ahead. There's road work. He gets really mad. And he's like, God, give me a sign. And then what happens is he gets behind this truck that cuts him off. It's a little hard to see. But he asks God for a sign. And what he gets is dead end, wrong way, do not enter, stop. So what does he do? What do we all do when God gives us signs? He got mad and he went around the truck and ended up plowing into a, a light pole, right? And so we, I don't know, maybe this is just me. We like to ask for God's will. How many of you guys have ever asked for God's will? Hey God, what's your will for me in this, in this job, in this relationship, in this situation that I'm in? God, what's your will? Can you show me what your will is? But sometimes what happens is just like Bruce, God provides us signs for his will, but then we skip right past them. We don't pay attention to the signs of what God's will is, and we just kind of move on. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to tell you by the end of my message this morning, you are all going to know definitively what God's will is for you. Without a doubt, I'm going to share with you this morning what God's will is for you. Now, I know I said we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians, and we are going to get there. But about 10 years ago... I was introduced to a chronological study Bible. And what this Bible did is it actually took some of the historical books of the Bible and then inserted into them some of like the letters of the New Testament or some of the Psalms of David. So you can read the story of David in the Old Testament. And when he writes like Psalm 51, after Nathan calls him out for his sin with Bathsheba, that Psalm is inserted into the story. And so you're kind of brought into the heart of what's going on. Well, the same thing happens in the New Testament. The apostle Paul writes all these letters to the church that we know, Romans and the Corinthians and Ephesians and all that. But all those happened in real time. And all those were written to real people. These weren't just made up stories. They weren't just fake things that somebody put together. Paul was a person who went and taught people about Jesus and then wrote stories to these, wrote letters to these churches. And so 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonica, is one of the places that Paul visited on his missionary journey. And so we're going to get to 1 Thessalonians in a minute. But what we're going to do is we're going to start in Acts. We're going to start in the book of Acts, which tells the story of, among other things, Paul's missionary journey. So keep your fingers or keep a piece of paper in 1 Thessalonians because we're going to be there in a minute. And then turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is just a few books before that. It's the story, we're in this part of the story where Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and he goes to this city called Thessalonica. So this is Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick it up right in verse, right in verse 1. Acts 17, verse 1, But when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Ampoli, uh, that other city, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul goes to this place, and this was kind of his custom. He would go in, and he would go to the synagogues, the places where the Jews were, and he would reason primarily with Jews about why Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for. So he would use the Jewish scriptures, and he would talk about who Jesus was in the life he lived, and he would reason during the synagogue, the times in the synagogue, with the Jews over why Jesus was the Messiah they were looking for. That didn't always go so well for him. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So God-fearing Greeks would have been people who didn't have Jewish heritage, but had come to believe in the God of the Jews. So Jew, Judaism is both a religion and a cultural identity, even back then. And so Jews were uh, through the line of, of birth. But people could come to believe in the same Jewish God, even if they weren't part of the Jewish lineage. And so that's what God-fearing Greeks would mean. So a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. If you have the English Standard Version, it says uh, they gathered together some reckless men of the rabble. Some rabble-rousers. So these Jews didn't like the idea that Paul was talking about Jesus as the Messiah. They weren't in favor of who Jesus was. They were the ones, if you remember, that killed him back in Jerusalem. And so they, they got some rabble-rousers together, and they formed a mob. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Beauty and the Beast, Disney's Beauty and the Beast, there's a scene towards the end where Gaston, who's the bad guy in the movie, he goes back to the people. He's like, look, and he shows them the beast, and like, kill the beast, right? That's what the Jews were doing. They're getting a bunch of rabble-rouders like, kill the beast. Let's go after Paul. Let's stop this guy from teaching about Jesus, this Messiah. We don't believe it. We don't like what he's saying. He's messing with our ideals and our ideas of how life should be lived. Let's stop him. Let's kill the beast. And they all get their pitchforks and their fire sticks and everything. They probably didn't really do that. but um, So they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, this is where Paul was, in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world. Now, they're exaggerating slightly. I mean, if you're trying to make a point for something, then you might use some exaggeration, but all over the world is, is a little bit much, right? These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. Dum, 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 dum. What are we going to do? They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, of course, they're misrepresenting what it is that Paul was talking about. Paul wasn't talking about Jesus as a king to replace Caesar. Paul was talking about Jesus as the king of faith, the one that we should follow, the Lord of our lives. And the Jews didn't like that because it interfered with their view of God. The Jews didn't care so much about what was happening with Caesar and yet they knew by going to the authorities that they'd have to point to Paul's teaching of Jesus as a king in place of Caesar in order to get these local officials to do something. They, were all they are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. The end of the story is kind of a little bit weak in this in this moment, right? So there's this big mob that forms. There's this riot that's going on. They come and they drag Jason and his friends um, out of the house. They can't find Paul. They get, Jason gets busted with the local city officials. They let him go and they postpone. And then verse 10 says, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So this is the context of what it looks like in Thessalonica. So when we get to 1 Thessalonians here in a minute, I want you to keep that in mind, that it wasn't like churches like here. You guys got up this morning, you had your coffee probably, you came here to church, maybe you talked to a few people on the way in. Life was rough in the early church. 
Life was difficult for these people who were persecuted. Jason was literally dragged out of his house and brought to the city officials because he was listening to the words of Paul. This is now the fourth time that Paul's teaching started a riot in a city and he had to leave. Four times Paul goes into these cities and talks to people about who Jesus was. A riot starts because people don't like that message and he has to leave secretly. But here's what's interesting. So from there, uh, following verse 10, Paul goes down to a city named Berea and he starts teaching the very same thing in this town called Berea. And look at verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. These guys were so feisty about what Paul was teaching that they traveled, I looked it up, it's about 45 miles away, which for us is nothing, but back then when they had to walk, it's about a two days journey. Two days of walking so that these Jewish rabble rousers can go rouse rabble in Berea also. That's passion misdirected. So here's Paul now for the fifth time. These guys from Thessalonica come down to Berea, they cause a stir, they cause a problem, and Paul has to leave. These Thessalonian Jews, this Thessalonica where the church was, was a difficult place to be a Christian. It was not easy, it was not relaxing, they had to hide out, they had to deal with cultural issues, right? That is the context of the church that we read about in 1 Thessalonians. So now you can turn to 1 Thessalonians. Now what happens in Paul's journey from there is he goes to a couple of other cities. He ends up in Corinth. He hangs out in Corinth for a while. And then he starts writing letters to some of the churches that he had visited previously. And of course, Paul, remember, these are real people living real lives. And so Paul cares about these people that he met in Thessalonica. And so he's concerned about what happened. The last thing he saw was a riot, right? The last thing he saw was the Christian church being attacked. And so Paul sends some of his envoy back to Thessalonica to kind of hear what's going on. That envoy comes back and shares with Paul that things are going okay. They're doing better. There's still trouble in the city. There's still problems, but the church is thriving. And so Paul writes this letter in 1 Thessalonians to the church to encourage them, to encourage these believers to continue in their walk of faith. He references, if you read through the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, he references the difficulties, he references the struggles, he references the trials. Paul knows that it is difficult to live the life of Christ in a cultural context that's antagonistic to the people there. Riots started because of Jesus. Now we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is the end of the book. Paul's starting to wrap up. He's kind of given them most of his message. We're going to start in verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. And here's what I want you to listen for. I'm going to read through. It's a bunch of commands of Paul to the Thessalonians. It's a bunch of commands of him saying, here's what it looks like to live your life for Christ in this world that you find yourself in. And what I want you to listen for is what does Paul say about God's will? What does Paul say is God's will for these people? So this is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard in love because of their work. 
live in peace with each other. These are all good principles, right? Even today, these are all good principles for us to live by. Live in peace with each other. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Some of these principles, if we put them into practice today, would probably serve our communities well, wouldn't they? Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Did you catch it? Did you catch what God's will is for you? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, depending on the scholarly perspective, some scholars think that God's will for you only applies to that last phrase. Some of think it applies to all three of those. The reason why I read starting in verse 12 is there are some scholars who believe that this is God's will refers to that entire section. But I realize you guys don't want to be here until midnight. So I'm actually just going to focus on the end 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How many of you guys have ever asked, God, what is your will for me? What is your will for my life? Paul would tell you that God's will for you is giving thanks in all circumstances. So here's the interesting thing. What that means is if you're not giving thanks in all circumstances, there's a problem. Because living without thankfulness is living outside the will of God. Living without thankfulness is living outside the will of God. What do we call it when somebody is living outside the will of God? Sin. Living outside of the will of God is sin. Living without thankfulness is outside the will of God. Living without thankfulness is sin. Now, maybe some of you think that's a little harsh. I use the S word, kind of pushing some buttons here. Maybe you're like, come on, Dan. I'm, I'm like thankful in like most circumstances. I mean, I kind of have a gracious heart. It's not that. I mean, it's sin. I want you to turn back a chapter to 1 Thessalonians 4. This same phrase about God's will we find in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Listen to what God's will is here. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, I think that very few people would look at this verse and say yes, or say no. God's will is, hey, he's okay with sexual immorality. He's okay if I sleep around, if I have an affair, you know, whatever. Very few people who are followers of Christ would say that it's okay for us to commit sexual immorality. Right here it says, it is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, it is God's will for you to give thanks. We don't get to choose which part of God's will we're going to follow. 
It is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. Most of us would affirm that sexual immorality is sin. It is God's will that we should live thankful lives. It's a lot harder to draw the conclusion that living without thankfulness is sin. But that's what God's word tells us. Now, I want to dissect the passage a little bit just to make sure that we're clear. You'll note that it says, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. It's not calling us to give thanks for all circumstances. We should not give thanks for evil. When my son had his accident 20 months ago, I still don't give thanks for that accident, but I can learn to give thanks in the situation that we find ourselves in. So regardless of what you're going through, good or bad, maybe you've lost your job, maybe you're going through a divorce, God's not calling us to be thankful for those things. He's calling us to be thankful in those things. It's a heart issue. It's a place of where our heart is. Can you thank God for what he is doing in you, even when the things that are happening are bad? Now, the other thing that's interesting is it says, give thanks in all circumstances. Most translations use all circumstances. Um, the Greek word underlying that is actually the word that means everything. Some translations, some older ones use the word everything. Give thanks in everything. And you know what everything means? It means everything. Okay, there's no limit. There's no, oh, I can't be thankful in this. I can't be thankful in that. It's not just our circumstances. I think I have a problem with the word circumstances in that it seems to only point us towards actions or events or things that are happening. But Paul's telling us that we should be thankful in everything that's going on in our lives. Maybe there's issues that are happening inside of us. Maybe we don't like certain things about who we are. We can work towards changing those things while being thankful to God in the midst of them. In everything, we need to give thanks to God. Whether it's issues in your thought life, whether it's issues in your sin, whether it's issues going on in the world, whatever is happening, Paul is calling us to be thankful in all of those things. Now, that seems like quite a monumental task. I don't know about you. I'm preaching this to myself. I have trouble being thankful in all circumstances. And here's where it's important for us to recognize where God has a will for something, he provides a way to accomplish it. We are not left to our own devices to figure out how to live this out. Because where God has a will for something, he provides a way to accomplish it. So if God's will for us is to be thankful in everything, we start here. We start with the word of God and we say, how does this teach me to be thankful when I don't want to be? Because here's the thing. Let's say you're in Cancun, it's sunny, there's waves crashing on the beach, you're sipping your soda or whatever you might be sipping, you're relaxing. It's easy to be thankful in those circumstances, right? It's easy to be thankful when life is good and life is great. It's much harder to be thankful in the storm. It's much harder to be thankful when everything seems dark. And yet, the same God who is there with you on the beach in Cancun is the God who is with you in the middle of the hurricane. 
the God who asks us, who commands us to live lives of thankfulness is the one who teaches us and shows us how to live that out. And just like my story earlier about the keys, when we learn how to live out God's will where he's commanded it in thankfulness, in avoiding sexual immorality, and the other places we read in Scripture, when we learn how to live out God's will in what may seem like these mundane, menial tasks, the thankfulness is the key that unlocks the door to God's will in other areas of our life. Thankfulness unlocks the door to God's will in our life. If we start with sorting keys, if we start with being thankful in everything and training ourselves how to be thankful, then as we seek God's will for specific things in our life, this becomes a training ground for that. So you're looking for a new job. Maybe you lost your job. It's hard to be thankful in that. God, what is your will for me in that? Well, God's will, the starting point is, can you be thankful to me in the midst of your job loss? Can you be thankful to me in the midst of these difficult circumstances? Because when you live out my will in this area, God tells us, then we're prepared and we're trained to find the key that unlocks the door to his will in other areas. If we're not being thankful, we're living in disobedience, then why would we expect that God would direct us in these specific areas? God's like, I already told you. I already told you my will. Be thankful in all circumstances. Why would you ask me if this is what you should be doing? Start here. Our thankfulness unlocks the door to God's will. Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time is kind of give you some some life hacks, some tips for how to be thankful. Now, these are not necessarily scriptural-based. They're they're kind of experiential, uh, some things that we have learned along the way. And so I want to kind of leave you with this idea of what does it look like to be thankful in everything in your life? So the first one, this is actually one that my wife, Michelle, uses. It's called Practice Thank Therapy. We learned this from a man named Jim Burns, who runs a ministry called Homeward. And thank therapy is this idea of when your circumstances are difficult, to actively make a choice to say thank you to God for something. So, you know, maybe you're uh, a mom with young kids and you've got dishes all over the place and your kids are running around screaming, writing on the walls with markers. Your husband's gone on a business trip and you feel like the walls of your house are just going to fall apart. It's easy to fall into this place of doom and despair like, oh my goodness, this is never going to end. Thank therapy would tell you, oh God, I'm thankful for these young lives that I get to minister to. Thank therapy would say, Thank you that I have running water today, Lord, that I can clean these dishes in my, th- in my sink. So thank therapy is this idea of looking at your difficult circumstances and actively making a choice to be thankful for something in them. Not thankful for locking my kids in the room and gagging them or anything like that. Thankful in the midst of your circumstances that God is doing something. Practice thank therapy. Number two, be on a gratitude watch. Be on a gratitude watch. And here's what this means, is that I firmly believe that when we are on the lookout for something, we will find it more easily. 
If we are on the lookout for something, we will find it more easily. And so if you are on the lookout for things to be grateful for, you're going to find it. If you go into your day and you say, God, help me to recognize the things that I can be thankful for. Maybe you're driving to work. Some guy cuts you off. You want to say something or do something. Thanks, God, they don't run into me. Thanks, God, I'm not on the side of the road with a broken down car because of this guy. Be on a gratitude watch. Be on the lookout for things to be thankful for. Number three, use a thank bank. Again, I didn't come up with this one on my own. I, I heard about it somewhere else. So a thank bank, we actually, I, I taught a similar lesson with our students on Thursday, and we made these little thank banks. This is just a little mason jar. Um, we put the verse on it, give thanks and everything. And inside, what we have are little note cards that just say thankful for. So you can put a mason jar, you don't have to decorate it, you can get a glass, you can get Pyrex, whatever. But the idea is that you have something available to you, that when you have that moment of thankfulness in the midst of the storm, when you have this moment where you're like, I am so grateful to God for such and such, you write it down. Because here's what's happened, we forget things really easily. It's much easier to hold on to the negative than the positive. And so we need to write down these positive things. And so if you write down the things that you're thankful for and you put them in your thank bank, you know what you can do? A few weeks later, when the kids are screaming again and there's marker on the wall and trash everywhere, you can go back to your thank bank and you can make a momentary withdrawal. Wow, I'm, I'm thankful that... Little Timmy knows how to tie his shoes now, so I don't have to do it. These thank banks become an opportunity for us to practice being thankful in everything, even when we don't necessarily want to. So three, three opportunities, three things that you can do in order to live out this principle from Scripture Paul calls us to give thanks in all circumstances. We can do that practicing thank therapy, recognizing in the midst of things, God, I am thankful for such and such. We can be on the lookout for things to be thankful for, be on a gratitude watch. You guys can create thank banks. I have the supplies in my office if you want to take some home. You can make your own. This is an opportunity to put down something that you are thankful for so you can refer to it. These are just some tools that you can use to live out this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. I want to end with one more story. The cousin of one of the students in our youth group, her name is Rebecca. She just graduated from high school. She lives in Texas. She started her freshman year at Texas A&M University. Her mom, Kristen, uh, writes updates about what's going on in Rebecca's life on a website called CaringBridge. You'll see a picture of her up here on the screen. That's Rebecca in the orange cap and gown from her graduation. Uh, the website, caringbridge.org slash visit slash Rebecca Taylor one. It's also in your sermon notes. 18 years old, Rebecca, kind of the prime of life, right? For the last 11 and a half years, Rebecca has been in and out of the hospital, sometimes for months at a time. 
She has a disease that I'm gonna to struggle to pronounce, but it's autoimmune autonomic ganglionopathy. It's an autoimmune disease that attacks her neurological system. For the last 11 and a half years, she has struggled with this. It started with her pancreas and it spread. She is missing seven organs because of this disease. She's been in and out of the hospital, sometimes in intense pain. She's on therapies all the time. You look at her in this picture and you would have no idea what it is that she's going through. So she started her freshman year at Texas A&M and was doing okay. And what happens with her particular disease is she'll have these flare-ups or she'll have these things that happen. And sometimes they can be managed well. Sometimes they turn into huge issues. And right now, right at this moment, Rebecca is in the hospital dealing with huge issues, intense pain. She's had so many surgeries that the surgery sites scar and scar over and have to be reworked on. She's missing, as I said, seven organs. And her mom, Kristen, writes on CaringBridge, and she wrote something a couple weeks ago as I was preparing for this message that I know that you need to hear. Because this is what it looks like to give thanks in all circumstances. This was written on October 21st by Rebecca's mom, Kristen. So Kristen's in the hospital. This is kind of within the first couple days. She says, I'm going on 40 hours of no sleep, so please forgive my delirious writing. Rebecca has an obstruction in her small intestines. Her large intestines have been removed, so only her small intestines remain. We do not yet know the exact cause of this obstruction. Did her intestines twist? Or are they scarred down? Because of the excessive air in her intestinal cavity due to the blockage, she has an NG tube that is pumping air out of her GI system. The air is slowly starting to dissipate. We are thankful. She is also low on her electrolytes, so we are filling her system up with specialized IV fluids, potassium, etc. Because of her elevated white blood cell count, she is on IV antibiotics as well. Her electrolytes are starting to level and her white blood cell count is lowering. We are thankful. Rebecca is still in very serious pain, but more under control with her IV medications. We are thankful. At this point, we are stabilizing Rebecca's system in the fervent hopes her intestines will right themselves if they are twisted or kinked. If the intestines are scarred or permanently blocked, then my beautiful child has to undergo major surgery again. We should know our answer in the next couple days. I cannot wrap my thoughts around option two right now. That's the option of going into surgery. So my heart is focused on the intestinal resolution possibility. In the meantime, we will choose to be thankful. What a picture that is of what it looks like to be thankful in all circumstances. Now, this was written October 21st. In the days since then, Rebecca has, has had to undergo major, major surgery. She's struggling, and she's in pain, and she's suffering, and her mom is living in the hospital with her while she also has younger kids and a family at home. I encourage you to go look at Rebecca's Caring Bridge if you want your faith to be inspired because she is amazing. A little bit later, a couple weeks later, I think, uh, Kristen wrote this about Rebecca. Even as co incoherent as Rebecca is because of all of her pain and pain meds, even as incoherent as Rebecca is, she constantly says, thank you, mom. Thank you. Thank you, mom. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you. It breaks me. She still says thank you through all her pain. What a model that is for us 
as we go into our day and as we go into our week to live lives of 1 Thessalonians 5.18 to be thankful in all circumstances. That's how Rebecca is living with what she has going on. I don't know what's going on in your lives, but I know that God cares about it deeply. And if God is telling us that we can be thankful in all circumstances, then God can give us the power to do that. And so I pray that as you go into your day and as you go into your week, that you would be able to do that, living in thankfulness towards God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for these words, again, that are as true now as they were when they were written a couple thousand years ago. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be saturated to overflowing with thankfulness to you. I pray, Lord, that we would learn, that we would be trained just like sorting keys, that we can be thankful in all circumstances, and that as we do that, we can learn what it looks like to live in your will in other areas of our life. Thank you, Lord, that you've provided this key. Thank you, Lord, that because of being thankful, because of being grateful, we can live in a place where we are in your will. I pray, Lord, if there is anybody who hears my voice who is struggling to know you and your will, Lord, that you would turn their hearts to you, that they would express their thankfulness to you, Lord, that each of us, no matter what we are going through, can see you at work in the midst of our difficult circumstances. Lord, thank you for all that you have done for us. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just leave this morning having heard a couple good stories, maybe being touched by what's going on with Rebecca, but Lord, it would be life-changing that our lives would change as a result of our encounters with you. So we are thankful to you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, we're prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.